Well, hello, children, and welcome back to Quarantine Cast 2020. I am Mr. DeSanti, and I do thank you for taking the time to get a little Western Civ as we are still apart in Corona cri- Crisis 2020. Today, I want to talk to you about a little known event in the United States that was absolutely critical in launching the course of events that leads to the American Revolution. You guys are probably well-versed in the American Revolution. You could all tell me about the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party and Paul Revere and things of this nature. And these things were pivotal moments on the road to American Revolution. That is undeniable. But one thing you might not know when you are citing things like taxation without representation is that two-thirds of the people who were fighting in the Continental Army, the men who were serving and resting through martial action, independence from the British, they were rural colonists. They were farmers. They were hunters. They were trappers. They were on the frontier. So when the history books tell you about the Stamp Act, what the Stamp Act was, is it was you had to fix the sticker, the stamp, on any sort of written legal document, even things like newspapers or playing cards, in addition to marriage contracts and and deeds and loans and any sort of formal paperwork. Think about a farmer who lived on the American frontier, who lived someplace on the edge of English civilization, where Freeport would be located today. They had no use for stamps. They were probably illiterate. This meant nothing to them. You guys all know about the famous Boston Tea Party. The British try to put a tax on tea, and colonists dressing up as Native Americans dump it all in Boston Harbor. It was a protest over tea. Do you think a frontier trapper, or trader, or farmer had a whole lot of use for tea, or the various things taxed by the Townsend duties, well, no. So to say taxation without representation is the catalyst to start the American Revolution is only half true. Yes, taxation without representation, the fact that Americans and the colonies had no representatives in the parliament that was levying taxes against them, that motivated people who lived in the cities, in the suburbs, who were in white-collar business, But to the farmer on the frontier, their motivations were very different. And part of their motivations for rebelling come from a little-known event that occurs at the very end of the French and Indian War. If you are graduates of the gentleman farmer, David J. Cradle's 10th grade history, you should know quite a lot about the French and Indian War. It is a conflict where, and in a future podcast, I want to talk more about these events, but it is a conflict where the English and the French are in competition for the most desired piece of real estate on planet Earth. And that was the Ohio River Valley that led to the lands of, as the natives told it, the Kentucky Wilderness. That was some of the most fertile ground and best hunting on the planet. And whoever controlled the forks of the Ohio River 
where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers formed the Ohio, would hold the gateway, would hold the key. And that made the place where Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania rests today, the most desirable real estate in the New World. And the French and English were in competition for it. A brash, adventurous, and daring young Virginia military officer named George Washington will inadvertently touch off this war. And it will take seven years in a conflict that was truly a global conflict between France and Britain for that war to be decided. decided. And the French are going to be largely defeated and the British become the dominant power in North America. But the other player in that war, as the name suggests, were the Native Americans. And it is called the French and Indian War as the Native Americans largely sided with the French during this conflict. So when the French were defeated, it was a net negative geopolitical shift for many of the Native Americans living in Central North America. And one group that was especially hurt by this was the Algonquin Confederation, led by the Ottawa tribe, residing right around where modern-day Michigan is today. The Ottawas were led by a charismatic chief named Pontiac. And Pontiac realized that without his French allies, he had very little chance of dislodging the long knives, as they called the British, because of the long swords they carried. But one way they might be able to do so was to, be, was to form a confederation. And perhaps with multiple Indian tribes working together, they could work against the English and dislodge them. So Pontiac will go around and he'll recruit numerous allies. And then he will launch a coordinated set of attacks on the various British forts along the western frontier. One of the most famous of these attacks occurs at a fort called Michilimackinac, which is very near modern-day Detroit. Now, if you were in the British Army, if you were a British regular, a redcoat, a lobsterback, one of the most boring assignments you could possibly get would be a frontier post like Fort Michilimackinac. You were in the middle of the woods. There was nothing to do. There were no girls. What meager money you had, there was nothing to spend it on. You're stuck in the woods doing nothing. But one of the things that you could do, one thing that guys like then and guys still like today, is sports. And the Indians had a great spectator sport that they loved to watch. I do not remember the Algonquin word for it, but the rough English translation is little brother of war. And that is what the game of lacrosse was called. A game that was invented and played by these Algonquin Ottawa Indians. And one of the places they liked to play their game was in the big flat field right in front of the fort. And the soldiers, the British, they loved to see these games. They were intense. The field was sometimes as long as a mile. Men would break bones. It wasn't unheard of for people to die during the game. They came, they were so intense. And sometimes they lasted days on end. 
So when the Indians would gather and play in front of the fort, this was prime spectator viewing. This was the Super Bowl of the frontier. And the regulars would line up on the walls and watch the game. One day during the lacrosse game outside Shillimackinac, the ball whizzed into the fort. Someone threw it too high. And like little kids, the Indians knock on the door and say, can we have our ball back? The soldiers are more than happy to do so. And they open the doors of the fort. And at that very moment, Ottawa's Indians are going to swarm into the fort. And they're going to attack. And they're going to kill every Englishman who lives there. They had war clubs on the other side of their lacrosse sticks. And this ambush, when the men's guard was down during the game, is going to result in the slaughter of all the soldiers at Michilimackinac. Similarly, in a coordinated effort, Pontiac's Confederation will launch attacks and conquer every single British fort on the frontier, every single fort except one. And that was the former British Fort Duquesne, sorry, the former French Fort Duquesne, which had been renamed Fort Pitt, the only British fort left standing against Pontiac and his confederation was Fort Pitt. Pontiac's massive confederation will besiege Fort Pitt. And the commander inside, the British commander, took to some pretty desperate measures to try to break that siege. Up until the First World War, the biggest killer in any conflict was not any sort of man-made weapon but it is something that we still fear today, disease. There was smallpox inside of Fort Pitt. All those people crammed into the small fort, a perfect, a perfect scenario for germs and disease to spread. Well, the leader of Fort Pitt thought he could perhaps use this calamity to his advantage. He offered a truce to Pontiac and his Native Americans besieging the fort, and he sent them a ceremonial sign of truce, gifts, and these gifts were blankets. Where he got the blankets? They were the blankets that the people who died of smallpox had had on them when they died and were wrapping the bodies before burial. We can't know for certain if the Indians caught smallpox from these blankets, but we do know this first act of biological warfare in the Americas could have been successful because there are reports of smallpox spreading in the camp of Pontiac shortly thereafter. Eventually, a British colonel by the name of Henry Boquette is going to come. And in a small battle fought, if you're a hockey player, out by the Delmont rink on 366 Center Ice Arena. There's a plaque about a mile from there that commemorates the battle at a place called Bushy Run. He is going to break Pontiac's Confederation, which was having trouble. They were infighting, and Native Americans were not really built for siege warfare. He's going to break the Confederation, and the uprising will sort of just melt away. And history largely has forgotten about Pontiac's uprising. It is this relatively small event, but the consequences were far-reaching. 
Because in the six, seven, eight, nine months where Pontiac's men were running wild on the frontier, hundreds and hundreds of settler families are going to be attacked and massacred. And the settlers who saw it took so long for the British to come to their aid, they never forgot it. To them, they said, what is the point of having this king? What is the point of swearing allegiance to the British where in our hour of need, they weren't there? We'd be better off on our own. Because of the expense of fighting the Indians, the King George is going to declare something called the Proclamation Line. And he's going to tell those settlers, in an effort to make sure they don't stir up more trouble with the Indians, that you can't go into the Ohio River Valley. You can't go into Kentucky that you fought for seven years to fight and take from the French. Once again, those settlers on the frontier, desperate for land, ambitious, they said, what's the point of being aligned with the British? If not only now do they tell us they're not going to fight the Indians for us, they're not going to let us take the land that's rightfully ours. And of course, none of them listened anyways. But the reason I tell this story is because when 1776 rolls around, when the Americans declare their independence, two-thirds of the men who come out to serve in the Revolutionary War could care less about stamps or tea or taxes. To them, the motivating force to serve is because they want the freedom to take the land that is theirs and they feel betrayed by a British government who did not protect them from Indians like Pontiac. And that is why they join and fight for independence. And as much as we like to talk about stamps and tea parties and Paul Revere, I think it's important we see the other side of what got those people serving and winning American independence. Of course, the war for independence will be long and difficult, but we'll make that a story for another day.